All right. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Josh. I'm the minister here at ACC. I'd love if you would start with me in a word of prayer. Father God, we're so grateful for your word. You would help to soften our hearts, to understand what it is that your will is for us, to understand what your word tells us, and then you would help us to into action in our lives. God, I ask that you would be with me. I help that you ask that you would make my words clear and concise so that your word would this church. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. And the church said, Amen. All right. So we're getting ready to jump into our Philippians series proper. So the last time I was up here, we talked about the book of Acts and the beginning of the church in Philippi. We, we touched a little bit on the uniqueness of the church in Philippi and how it was the first church in, uh, outside of the region of Asia Minor. We talked a little bit about the Jerusalem Council and the, the humility and decision-making process that they made. We, we picked up Timothy along the way, if you remember, last week. And today we're going to actually jump into the book of Philippians. And as, and as we kind of change our lens a little bit from what we've been doing. So when we had our Psalms series, when we had our series on the book of Matthew and Exodus, we were looking at the Bible with this big lens, right? The binoculars, the telescope, looking at big chunks of text. And as we all the way in, and I want to be studying the book of Philippians with the microscope now. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to go verse by verse down through the book of Philippians, and we're just going to break it down. So I've planned this series to be four weeks because there's four chapters. Um, but I want us to comb through the text. And that means if, if, if I don't get all the way through a chapter or, or a section, we're just going to put the pause button on next week and we'll extend it because I want us to, to really get our, our good due diligence on the text of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we have Bibles in the, in the pews here if you need one. Um, I invite you to, to join with me in reading God's Word and we're going to jump into Philippians chapter 1 verse 1. So from Paul and Timothy. We talked about Paul and Timothy last week in the book of Acts. Um, Timothy is, is the, the one we all know Timothy. There's books written to him. He was the one that picked up on their way to Philippi. So Paul and Timothy both have this really special relationship with the church in Philippi. So from Paul and Timothy, slaves. Your Bible might say servants there. Um, the, the, the proper term, probably the most accurate term for the word there is bondservant, um, to describe the Greek word there. Bondservant is an accurate description of the word, but the problem is it's not a word that any of us use in everyday life. So our, our Bible translation have with accurately portraying God's word on one hand, and also using language that people actually know and understand. Nobody knows what a bondservant is. Is So your Bible will either say slave or servant, because those are words that we know and understand. But the sense 
the word that Paul uses to describe himself is not necessarily of a servant like we think. So a servant, a servant has the option to get another job and work for another master. Right? In our modern sense, when we think of a servant, a servant is somebody who works for a nobleman or a king, but hired hand, and they're not loyal to their master in the same way that a slave or a bond servant, somebody who is indebted to their master is. And so this language that Paul's using is, is this, this idea that Paul is a slave of Christ. He is fully and 100% committed to Christ at all cost. There is no other option. There is no, I might just get a new job with another Christ somewhere else. He is a slave of Christ. So I, I think the word slave here is probably a good rendering. And I, excuse me, obviously modern sensibilities as we live in America. We live in a post-Civil War America, and so there's all of these connotations. Slave. Um, what I want us to do is, I want us to do put all of our own to the side. The original audience wasn't thinking about Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War and the slave trade in America the way, because it hadn't happened yet do is we can just take our thoughts when we hear that word slave and put it over here in a box and try to understand how the church in Philippi understood it. The church in Philippi would have seen this as an act of humility on Paul's part. Um, I find it fascinating. If you look at the way that Paul opens up his other letters, this is 1 Corinthians, from Paul of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians, from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Galatians 1, from Paul, an apostle, not uh, Colossians 1, from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Do you see the pattern that happens here when Paul opens up his letter? But here in Philippians, from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Why has he changed the word there? Apostle is a title that denotes authority, respect. When Paul writes you a letter and says, I am Paul, an apostle of Christ, what he's really saying is, hey church, I'm an official. What I have to say, I'm holding that position to let you know that what I'm about to say is important and it's authoritative. In Philippians, he takes the opposite route. He puts himself on this. Slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in the overseers and the deacons. So, so not only is Paul putting himself on this lower position, but he's talking to the church and he's lifting them up. He's calling them by their official titles in the church. He's giving them the authority role, the authority name. The overseers and the deacons, are, or throughout the Bible there's different names, right? Elders and ministers, bishops and deacons. There's different ways you can say this. The point is, Paul is lowering himself and lifting up the church. 
grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with for all of you. I give you guys uh, a really handy little Bible reading tool to keep in your tool belt here. This is one of those back pocket things. If you're reading a letter in the New Testament, especially if you're reading a letter written by Paul, Paul does this thing where he gets to this part of his letter, he says, I thank my God for dot, 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 dot. And that, if you want to know the shortened You go to the beginning of the letter, you find the part where he says, I thank God for, dot, 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 and that's letter. So any, any letter you read, when you, when you get to that section, you can get to the point where you're like, okay, I want the summary, the down and dirty of what Paul talked about for the rest of this letter. And so as we get into verse 3, we, we have this, I thank my God, thank my God every I remember you. I always pray with joy in every prayer. Notice, Paul uses some version of the word all or every or each four times in those three verses, two verses. What he's basically telling them is he's signaling to them as a church, I think about you guys 24 hours a day. Every time I pray, every time I have a memory, every time I'm thinking of all of you, you're the people that I think about constantly. Paul is displaying this affection for the church where he's saying, like, you guys are on my mind all the time. He's not just casually thanking God for them. They're the people he's thinking about. So what is it precisely that he's thanking God for, for the church in Philippi? Verse 5 says, because of your gospel from the first day until now. That word there, participation, or fellowship, your partnership, your Bible might say, um, that's a unity word. That's the same word where we get the word fellowship from and the word communion from. That's a word that denotes unity with both each other and with him in the gospel of Jesus. So we're getting these themes that we're going to see all throughout the book of Philippians is these themes of unity in the church, participation together, fellowship with one another. Verse 6 says, For I am sure of the very thing, that the one who began a work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's a song we sang. The one who began a good work in you will continue to work and perfect you. And Paul's sure of that. He says, as I'm sure of this very thing, the phrase he uses gives this idea that if everything else faded away, if nothing else existed, if I could else, I would be confident in this one thing. He's signaling, he's displaying to them, this is the thing that I put my stop, my hope in. And that's the fact that the one who began a good work in you, that's God, will continue to perfect and, and grow and finish you until Jesus comes back. 
describing a big, fancy church word that we sometimes use, sanctification. I don't like using big, fancy church words. It's this idea that when we come to Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, God begins this work in us by giving us the Holy Spirit. And then as we grow in Christ, as we spend time in relationship, fellowship with one another and display that unity, the Holy Spirit works in us like a potter, molding clay, shaping us to be the finished product that God wants us to be, perfecting us and making us more and more and more image of Christ. Verse 7, he says, For it is right for me to think about all of you, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you became partners in God's grace with me. Partners, that's another unity word. That's the same word that Paul uses in this participation in the gospel. We'll get there. But it's verse 7 where we understand this, where we realize, oh, this is a prison letter. Oh, Paul's writing this from a cell somewhere. Um, if you have a study Bible or any little notes, yours might say he was prison, imprisoned in Rome. I tend to lean towards him being in prison in Ephesus. Um, there's a... We don't know where specifically he was in prison, and it, it doesn't really matter. If you read Acts, if you read Paul's other letters, you'll realize that Paul wound himself up in jail like a lot. Um, so we really shouldn't be surprised by this. And we, he was in prison somewhere um, as he's writing this letter. And, as we're, and just like the slavery thing, as we're imagining Paul in prison, we have to take our modern idea of what prison looks like and put it over to the side for a second. Ancient didn't have a constitution like we do in the same way. They didn't have a Fifth Amendment. They didn't have an Eighth Amendment. Cruel and unusual punishment. Um, they didn't even have sentencing. Right? So if, if you are, are locked up in America today, what happens is you are arrested upon probable cause, and then you go to jail, and there there's a specified amount of time where you wait until you get to see a judge, and then you have a trial, and then you are given a sentence. Okay, you spend prison. You do this much. That's not the way things worked in Paul's day. First off, the conditions were not nice. You, you didn't get three meals a day. You didn't get your own cot and an hour a day to go outside and play basketball. You didn't even have a place to use the bathroom. ancient Rome, there was no such thing as like probable cause. You were arrested because some Roman soldier didn't like the way you looked at him and threw you in prison. Well, I mean, you got a point there, but. <laughs> so most of what happened was you were in these filthy conditions and most people just were locked up with no cause and then just died in prison because there was no sanitation, there was no it was a death sentence. 
We're lucky enough, and I mean lucky enough, to even get the opportunity to get a trial. Your trial could end in exactly three ways. Number one, they found you innocent and you were free to go. That was the best case. They found you guilty and you were executed. Or number three, they found you guilty and if you were lucky, you could get exiled like Paul on, or like John on, on the island of Patmos, which was basically a death sentence, but just slower because they'd put you on an island somewhere and then just you just go there till you die. Those were the three options. There was no like, oh, you're going to serve a couple years and then you'll get out and you can have an appeal and a parole. No, that's not how it worked. So if you're a prisoner, in ancient Rome, your only hope of not dying was working on your defense in the hopes that maybe someday you would get to stand before Caesar or a governor or a judge of some kind. So what Paul, what Paul should have been doing, if he wanted to stay alive, Paul should have been spending every waking moment crafting a well-crafted defense and argument as to why he was innocent. And if anyone's going to do that, it's Paul. Paul was a smart guy. He understood Roman law. He was a Roman citizen. He was intelligent enough to know how to craft a good argument. And that's what he should have been doing this entire time. Instead, what's he doing? It's right for me to think this about all of you because I have you in my heart. Here Paul is on the verge of death and all he can think about is, man, I sure hope the church in Philippi is okay. I should write them a letter because I just love them so much. I just want to check on him. What would it be like if that was our mindset? in our pain, and our suffering, if, if we were in the worst possible condition and the only thing we could think about is, man, I, I, I sure hope that Ron and Virginia are okay. I should call them. I should get check on Jacob and Maria. I should just, you know, because I care so much about them that like if as a church we did that. I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation, okay, these are legal lawyer terms, his defense and his confirmation. That's what, how you describe the document you would craft to put in front of Caesar to say, I, Paul, am innocent. His defense and confirmation of the gospel. Think about that for a minute. Paul was crafting a legal defense. But it wasn't for him. He was crafting a legal defense for the gospel of Christ. He cared more about the mission, the message of the cross of Christ, than he did his own well-being and his own life. That's what he was doing behind bars, spending every waking moment caring about the church and writing a defense of the gospel. Since that, you become partners in God's grace together with me. Again, that's that word. Paul's commending the church on their unity and their fellowship in the grace of Christ. Verse 8. For God is my witness that I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Okay, quick side note. 
Who, is anybody reading a King James? Old King James. Okay. <laughs> if you want to chuckle, go read Philippians in the Old King James. Um, God is my witness. I long for you in the bowels of Christ. <laughs> it's, I laugh every time because I'm immature. Um, it's, this, it's this Greek word that technically literally means bowels. Um, but ancient Rome, and at the time, even up until the time the King James was written, they, they didn't talk about the seat of emotion. Like we would say, I long for you in the heart. Well, that's not where they imagined where our emotions came from. They imagined it came from your gut. This idea that the deepest, most sincere thing that you could feel from somebody, you could feel it all the way down. There, you know. So today we would say, I long for you with the heart of Christ. Um, Obviously, we don't talk about longing for somebody in our bowels because it has a totally different meaning. Um, but I want you to understand that the affection that he's feeling for them is at, is at gut level. It's the deepest, most deep-seated affection that you could possibly imagine. So up until this point, Paul has been praising the church. He's been talking about how, he, how much he longs for them. And then we get to verse 9. And we've, we finally get his prayer for them, his sort of instructions for them. Verse 9 says, I pray that even more and more in the knowledge and every kind of, kind of insight. To abound, to overflow. So full that their love is just pouring over with knowledge. And the word there is mental knowledge. This is, this is wisdom in the sense of understanding what is true and insight, or your Bible might say discernment. This is moral knowledge. So he wants their love to be overflowing with both knowledge, book smarts, understanding truth, and also moral wisdom, knowing right from wrong, so that, in verse 10, you can decide what is best. Literally, it says, so that you can tell the difference or so you can differentiate the important things. You can decide what is best and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Coming spotless and blameless. That's that sanctification. That's that continuing to grow in knowledge and wisdom and becoming more and more like Christ until he comes back. That's our summary of the entire book of Philippians. Paul wants them to foster humility and unity and discernment in the church. And he views all three of these things as a vehicle for spiritual growth into becoming like the image of Christ, into that sanctification and the continuation of the gospel mission. He even more than his own well-being and his own life. And so as we get into verse 12... And we're not going to finish all of chapter most of chapter 1. As we get into verse 12, 
Paul then takes what he has told them and then he displays it with his actions. Attitude. So verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. Okay. Let's back up about five minutes. Remember what we talked about, about Roman prisons and how awful and terrible they were? Paul's like, this is great. Man, I love sitting in a dark cell in my own filth and on the verge of death. This is awesome. You know why? Because it's actually, it's actually a good thing because people are coming to Christ because of it. Okay. I wish I could say that I had that type of optimism, but Paul is displaying a level of optimism that is just off the charts here. In spite of all the suffering he's going through, he assures the church, like, no, 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 this is actually a good thing. Place me here for a reason. Verse 13, he says, The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I am in prison for the sake of Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having confidence in the Lord, dare to speak the word fearlessly. Paul's like, this is great. Prison's awesome. Everyone knows I'm here for Christ. Christ's name is being proclaimed. And everybody's seeing my suffering, and it's emboldening them to speak the gospel even more. He's excited about the fact that God is working through his suffering to create something good, to grow the kingdom. Verse 15 is, is, is really interesting. It says, Some... will. The latter do so from love because they love the gospel. There's more of those acting a defense of the gospel. The former, those are the ones who are preaching from uh, envy and rivalry, the former proclaim not clearly because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. I want to talk about these two verses. There's a lot of ideas, a lot of theories of what that means. Because it's, it's hard for us to think about, like, well, what would it look like for somebody to preach the gospel out of rivalry and envy? Like, I don't... It's hard to kind of put your mind in that space and envision what that would look like. And so there's a lot of different really smart people, smarter than I am, have different theories of what Paul's talking about. Most likely... What's going on here is Paul's opponents, people who don't believe in Christ, either, either Jewish opponents, maybe even message to other people in an effort to discredit him and make him sound crazy. They're like, can you believe this Paul guy? He's going around everybody that he worships somebody who rose from the dead. And can you get the load of this guy? He believes that if you have faith in Jesus, you too will rise from the dead. Can you believe how crazy this guy sounds? Or, you know, if it, was, if, it was, if it were Jewish opponents, they were like, can you believe this Paul guy going around telling everybody? He's telling people that you don't have to follow the whole law of Moses to be saved. And it was backfiring. They were trying to 
Paul sound bad by saying, can you believe this guy believes that you'll have eternal life in heaven and raised from the dead? And the people were like, really? Can you believe this guy's trying to say you can circumcise without following the law of Moses? And they were like, oh, right on. That sounds good. It was backfiring. Paul is, Paul is overjoyed because people are hearing the message of Christ. And he says, what is the result? Only that, verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ to rejoice, for I know that will, this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, I think we can safely say, when Paul is rejoicing here, um, I don't think he was happy about the false gospel or the false message that they were preaching. Like, if you read Galatians or 1 Corinthians, Paul has some words about people who are trying to lead people away from Christ. So he wasn't happy in that regard. He wasn't happy that people were preaching a false gospel. He was rejoicing about the fact that our God is so good that he can even use those people as a vehicle for growing and expanding the gospel mission. Which, remember, Paul views that one thing, the gospel mission, as more important than even his own life. I know, would somebody uh, let Nancy know? We've got about a five-minute warning, five or ten-minute warning here. Verse 20. Paul says, My confident hope is that I in no way be ashamed but that with complete boldness, even now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or die. So this is the point at which Paul finally says out loud the thing that he has been implying this entire time. This idea that the gospel mission is more important than my own life. His number one mission is the exaltation of Christ, the magnification, making Christ known to the ends of the earth. And Paul's only hope is that live or die, Christ would be glorified. That's all he cares about. Verse 21, he says, For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now, if I am to go on living in this body, this will mean productive work for me, yet I don't know which I prefer. Your Bible might say, I don't know which I will choose. Um, the New Living says, I don't know which one is better. We'll take this verse and they will pluck it out of context and they will try to tell you that here in Philippians, Paul is advocating for suicide, that Paul is trying to justify 
of his own telling of his own life. And I think it's, it's fairly clear from the context as we actually read through the text of the Bible that that's not what's going on. Paul is coming face to face with the very real possibility that he might not get out of prison alive. He's coming face to face with the fact that there's a very high probability that he's either going to die in a prison cell or he's going to go before a judge because he has not been on innocence and the judge is not going to believe him and the judge is going to say, yep, straight to the crucifixion. And what Paul is doing is he's crunching the numbers and he's looking at these options that have been laid out before him, not of his own choosing, but there are very real possibilities. And he's trying to figure out which one of these would be the thing that would be the best option for the expansion of the gospel. That's dedication. Paul's saying, would it be better if I died in prison? Would all of the prisoners... Uh, See Christ magnified if I died here in prison? I don't know. Would it be better if I was publicly martyred? Would then a lot of people would, would see Christ magnified that way? Oh, maybe. Would it be better if I was freed and released so that I could go and, and uplift the church in Philippi and go plant new churches and grow the kingdom that way? Verse 23 says, I feel torn between the two because I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So Paul says, on the one hand, if I die, I get to go live with Jesus. Like I said, if he's murdered in prison, that's going to embolden people to speak the word more fearlessly. If you go back to verse 14, his suffering is causing more people to come to faith in Christ. So he's like, well, maybe, oh, maybe if they kill me, more people will be emboldened. Speak out fearlessly for the gospel. But, verse 24, it is more vital for your sake that I remain in the body. So Paul crunches the numbers and he says, you know what, I think more people will come to Christ. Christ's kingdom will grow the best if I remain alive and go out and plant more churches and uplift the church in Philippi and embolden them to grow and live in Christ. And he says, And since I am sure of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith. Paul has confidence not in, his, not in himself, not in his own ability to be found in it. He has confidence in the fact that God has set him apart for the gospel, and he has confidence that whatever God does is going to be the thing that grows the kingdom the best. So Paul says, well, I've calculated the numbers, and I think that if I stay alive, that's what's going to grow the kingdom the best. And so Paul's like, if that's the kingdom, that's his kingdom to grow, and so I am confident, I am sure of the fact that I'm going to live. That's how much faith in God. 
It says, I will remain and continue with all of you for your sake, for the sake of your progress. The word for progress is the exact same word he uses in verse 12 when he says my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. Same word. That is only focus. The advancement of the church above all things. So don't understand this section as Paul's desire to die. Paul's desire is simply to do what is best for the kingdom, up to and including his own death. Verse 26, the so that. My favorite parts of the Bible are the so that verses. All of this is so that what you can be proud of may increase because of me in Christ Jesus when I come back to you. And again, this word he uses, increase, is the exact same word he uses in verse 9, that your love may abound even more and more. This is the same Greek word. It's tricky when our English Bibles take different contexts, but, but understand that that's the same word used there. So the thing that they can be proud of, that Paul is convinced of, is that their love may abound more and more. What is it that Paul's proud of? It's their love. It's their It's their fellowship. With All right, let's, let's land the plane here. Paul begins his letter by displaying extreme humility and praising the church for their unity and their continued growth in Christ. He distresses the importance of their discernment, both in knowledge and in moral wisdom, insight, morality, and he explicitly and implicitly displays an example for the church. He displays for them the way he teaches them, both in his words and his action, is that the way these things can be attained, moral insight, growth in Christ, advancement of the gospel, all of these things that Paul holds as more important than himself, the way these things happen is through extreme to the king. He's a slave of Christ. And submission to the gospel at all costs. And he tell them, he shows them what this looks like. He shows them by displaying that his decision-making framework, the lens through which every choice he makes is, does this action build up Christ's church or not? Of these two actions, which one builds up Christ's church? And Paul sees that one fact alone is more important than anything in the world, even his own life. And I can't help but think what it would be like for decision-making lens. How would our lives be different? How would our jobs be different? How would the way we interact if our decision-making framework is does this magnify Christ? Does this grow his kingdom? 
first. Even above my own health, my own life, and my own well-being. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you as, as slaves of Christ. Servants who are wholly committed to you and you alone. And God, we just ask that as we go out into the world, as we interact with people, that you would help us to make our decision-making lens magnify your Son and grow your kingdom. God, we ask that you would help us to have discernment in both knowledge and wisdom. for the confidence that you give us, the one hope we have. You began a good work in us, will continue to grow us and perfect us and finish us into the image of your Son until he comes back. We are so grateful for him and the blood that he shed that allowed all of this to happen. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray. And the church said,